The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me to uh, Psalm 18. We're going to be in verses 37 through 50 tonight. So this is going to be our last week in this visit to the Psalms. Uh, We'll come back off and on with the goal of making our way through the whole Psalter before either Jesus comes back to get us or I'm granted uh, the great privilege of joining him in our eternal country through death. Okay, so we'll be back, but this will be our last uh, time here in this portion. Uh, We're going to start Advent next week, so that's the weeks leading up to Christmas where we prepare our hearts uh, for celebrating the birth of Christ. So do your best to be here the next four weeks. They always kind of build on each other, and it's all one big, long celebration through the month. So try to be here. Join us for that. So tonight we're going to finish out chapter 18, uh, and I want to give you all a fair warning. This text is going to open up some conversation for us that will be... of a different tone than many of you might be used to, okay? So I want you to know this. If this is your first time gathering with us tonight, or this is the first sermon you've listened to online, this sermon is going to be a fair bit more aggressive than the average around here. And I know that some of you are thinking, oh, dear Lord, he can be more aggressive than normal, (laughs) which is a fair-ish statement. I will give you that. But we need to understand, okay, that the Word of God is not a grouping of inspirational quotes to help you feel better about yourself, okay? The Bible is the Word of God, and though it is full of reasons for rejoicing and hoping and being encouraged, it is also like a surgeon's scalpel, and it's meant to cut away the cancer of sin that constantly seeks to spread and destroy us. Uh, In case you're not sure if that's true, Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Amen. So if you are here tonight and you are not a follower of Jesus, we want you to know a few things. First of all, you're welcome here. We love you. We're honored that you're here, and we will do our best to serve you and figure out, help you figure out who God is and whether or not you will worship him on his terms. The Bible teaches that God so loved us that he sent Jesus to die in our place, which means that he got the punishment we deserved and we get the reward that he earned. And that reward is righteousness and it's right standing with God. And this can only be received as a gift. It can never be earned by our own efforts. The way this gift is received is by faith. The question tonight is not, can you make yourself perfect in God's sight? Most, if not all of us, understand that that's not possible. The question is, can you believe that Jesus did what we can't? That he lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death upon the cross, and then rose from the grave three days later. If you can believe what the Bible says about Jesus, if you can admit that you can't save yourself and trust Jesus to be your Savior, the Scriptures say that you will be saved. So the question is, will you stop trying to be your own ruler and let God be king over your life? You can pray to God right now and know that he will be faithful to his promise to save you. Now, 
I know most of you are used to hearing that clear invitation to trust Jesus towards the end of a sermon, but putting it first here tonight is on purpose, and that's for at least two reasons. And I'm going to tell you the reasons. I'm going to let you behind the veil of what I'm doing. The first reason why we put it first tonight is that the weekly gathering of God's people for worship, scripture study, communion, and just overall gospel celebration is not primarily evangelistic in nature. What do I mean when I say that? Well, it means the purpose on Sundays is more about equipping the saints for the work of the kingdom than it is helping people become followers of Jesus. All who belong to Jesus are then expected to go out into the world the rest of the week and be ambassadors sharing the good news of his gospel. The hope being that they lead people to give their lives to Jesus. They can then bring them to gather with God's people out of obedience to him and for further teaching and equipping. Now, we do have instruction in the New Testament to be aware that people who don't yet follow Jesus may be present on Sundays. And so we're told to do things decently and in order, for example. This is also one of the reasons why the gospel needs, just one of the reasons why the gospel needs to be clearly presented every time we gather. The other reason is because we all need it, weekly, daily, if not hourly. Amen. Reason number two, this fact that the Sunday gathering is meant more for equipping believers than making believers is going to be even more evident tonight. So, if you have responded to the gospel invitation you heard a moment ago, then the Holy Spirit will help you to hear with new ears and to see with new eyes the truth of the scriptures tonight. No man can come to the scriptures without the help of the Holy Spirit and discern or understand anything. The scriptures, the gospel, the wisdom of God is foolishness to the person whose eyes are still blinded. But by faith, our eyes can be opened and the Holy Spirit can help us see. If not then this sermon will likely be difficult for you to relate to because <laughs> this one is going to be rough even for those who've been following Jesus a long time, okay? And so that's why we've gone the way we've gone tonight. Now, that's probably the longest preface I've ever done leading up to reading the scriptures. You guys excited? <laughs> I'm kind of joking, but hopefully, hopefully you can look forward with excitement to the great physician doing heart surgery on you tonight. Because it, it may hurt at first, but it's always and only for our good. Amen. Okay. Uh, as we read Psalm 18, verses 37 through 50, I'm going to ask you to pay special attention to the unsanitized brutality of David's words here. Okay? Here we go. Psalm 18, 37 through 50. I pursued my enemies and overtook them. I did not turn back until they were consumed. I shattered them so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you have girded me with strength for battle. You've subdued under me those who rose up against me. You've also made my enemies turn their backs to me, and I destroyed those who hated me. They cried for help, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Then I beat them fine as the dust before the wind. I emptied them out as the mire of the streets. You have delivered me from the contentions of the people. You have placed me as head of the nations, a people whom I have not known serve me. As soon as they hear, they obey me. Foreigners submit to me. Foreigners fade away and come trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation. The God who executes vengeance for me and subdues people under me. He delivers me from my enemies. Surely you lift me above those who rise up against me. You rescue me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you among the nations, O Lord. And I will sing praises to your name. He gives great deliverance to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David, 
and his descendants forever. Amen. Praise God for his word. There is a meme, that's a picture with funny words, for those of you who are not aware. There's a meme floating around the interwebs, and it shows a picture of a mug made out of a human skull. Okay, And this is what it reads. The problem with society today is that we no longer drink from the skulls of our enemies. I thought you'd think that was funnier than you did. I think it's hilarious. And there's some truth to it. Uh, I, I think, I'll just say this, I think David, according to these 13 verses, would agree with that sentiment. Did you hear these 13 verses? I mean, some of you were up just uncomfortable even reading it. So, What's in the Bible? Good Lord. Yes, it is. Now, the paradigm has shifted from David's time. We need to acknowledge this. It's shifted because of Jesus. We do not battle flesh and blood human enemies as David did. Not in, in, a, in a kind of as like the Lord's army. Now, nations may need to do that at different times, but I'm talking about God's commission of, of his army and, and his people is not that we go fight other people. Uh, we fight spiritual forces of darkness, according to Ephesians 6, but also another enemy uh, that we tend to think about and, and talk less about. Now, before we name that enemy, I want us to try to connect with the ferocious and violent indignation we are supposed to approach this enemy with, okay? We struggle to understand sometimes how walking in the love of God and, and having this kind of savage mentality are not mutually exclusive. Let me say that the opposite way so you make, I make sure you understand what I'm saying. I'm saying for many of us, we look at what we understand about the love of God and we look at the savagery that David just talked with and it's like, I don't, I don't see how those could go together, Okay? But this is what we're going to try to understand today. This is what we're going to work on. And so I'm, I'm going to ask you to imagine something. And I'm going to ask you to allow yourself to connect emotionally with the scenario I'm describing. Okay? I know it's been a while maybe since some of you played make-believe. But I'm going to ask you to paint a picture in your mind and, and really think about a scenario and try to connect emotionally to how, if you were in this scenario, you would feel, you would react. The point of this is to help you tap into something that tends to lay dormant in the majority of our safe and sanitized Western society. Okay? That's what I'm trying to do. It, it, some of you, it will work. Some of you are going to be so far detached from what I'm trying to get you that you may not get there tonight, but at least we can open up the idea. And that's okay. I understand that. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Close your eyes. I want everybody to do that, please. Uh, unless you're listening to this podcast after the fact and you're driving, then please don't close your eyes. But uh, the rest of you in here right now, please do that. Close your eyes. And I want you to imagine in your mind first a child that you love very much. Just imagine a child that you love very much. Their face, think about them, okay? Now, if you've got them in your mind, now I want you to imagine that you're carrying that child or you're walking hand in hand with that child at a park, okay? And you've left your phone in your car. All right, you got it? You guys are just walking along. Nice sunny day. Now, I want you to imagine that a grown man walks up, pushes you down, grabs that child, and begins to walk away with them. The question I want you to ask yourself as you imagine this is, what would you do? How would you feel? To what length would you go to rescue that child? You can open your eyes. 
The degree you can connect to this will vary based on a variety of factors, but I am trying to help you begin to understand how God's love and an almost savage determination to stop something or someone can go hand in hand. And the practicality of this, I think it's important probably that I say this because this goes on the internet, is most of you would never leave your phone in the car. Okay, that's a separate sermon. But because of that, most of you would have your phone, and your best move practically would probably be just to follow them and call the police, okay? But the practicality of this is not really the point. That's not what I was trying to do. It's trying to get you to connect emotionally and feel what I'm trying to get you to feel. The question is, how far would you follow them? What kind of determination would you have? What kind of fire would you have in your belly if this child that you love was just ripped out of your hands and they're trying to walk away with them? This is the point. And however it is you would react, whatever determination and fire you, in your belly you would have in that scenario, that's beginning to kind of tap into and help you understand the absolute brutal approach we are supposed to have when dealing with the enemy of our own sin and the deeds of the flesh. Romans 8.12, so then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, but if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you're putting to death the deeds of the body. See, now this is starting to help us understand why it's not so crazy that David's talking about beating them into fine dust trampling them under his feet, dumping them out in the street like refuse. Now, you might be thinking something to the effect of, okay, well, yeah, you know, I see that. I see what you're saying, but I think you're going a little bit too far. Okay? I grant that that is possibly where you could be. Let me just read you a quote from Jesus, and we'll see where we're at. Matthew 18, 8. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. I just figured I'd read you that because I'm going to say some crazy stuff tonight, but I figured I'd leave Jesus at like saying the craziest stuff. Okay? Now, there is debate about how literal Jesus is being here. I tend to think he's being metaphorical because, don't, you know, whatever, it's okay. If you think he's being literal, that's not what we're talking about. But I'm just, for me, hands and eyes aren't the real problem. It's hearts and minds set upon worldly and fleshly things instead of set upon the spirit that are the problem, okay? If sin is not put to death, okay, you can figure out how to lust without eyes. That's why I don't think what Jesus is saying here is literally pluck your eye out. I think he's just speaking to the intensity with which we should come against fleshly lust, desires, and sin. Whether it's metaphorical or not, we, we see the savage and violent way we are supposed to attack the problem of our own sin. John Owen famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. 
Now, some of us have no problem with this brutal approach to the enemy of sin and, and fleshly desires because we regularly take this approach with the sin of other people. This is out of order. We are commanded to put sin to death and to attack it with the fierce vigilance of a well-trained soldier. But this vigilant savagery towards sin is supposed to be against our own, not that of others. This is a quote from an author. His name is Ed Welch. He says, there is a mean streak to authentic self-control. Self-control is not for the timid. When we want to grow in it, not only do we nurture an exuberance for Jesus Christ, we also demand of ourselves a hatred for sin. The only possible attitude toward out-of-control desire is a declaration of all-out war. There's something about war that sharpens the senses. You hear a twig snap or the rustling of leaves, and you're in attack mode. Someone coughs, and you're ready to pull the trigger. Even after days of little or no sleep, war keeps us vigilant. Now, this talk, before we get too far, this talk of the flesh can be confusing. So let's say what we mean. We are not talking about our physical bodies. We are talking about the sinful remnant of desires and behaviors that ruled us completely before Jesus set us free from their tyranny. The Bible teaches that before we are saved by grace through faith in Christ, we are slaves to sin. And we're unable to fight its mastery over us. But Jesus is a more powerful and better master, and he can break those chains from our wrists. But, like fools, we oftentimes go back and pick them up and put them on and live like slaves again. Now again, we get help from Romans 8. This is starting in verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Okay, We're talking about fairly difficult concepts. We're talking about the, the difference between the flesh and the spirit. And, and the Bible gives us some things to understand that, that there is a delineation. It doesn't totally explain it to a degree that we probably feel great about. But as we discussed last week, sometimes with the Bible, you get what you get. <laughs> and you work off that. So hopefully, the first portion of this the goal has been, hopefully we're there, I've, hopefully I've convinced you that making violent war against our own fleshly desires and sinful behaviors, instead of living at peace with or even defending them, is what God has called us to do. That's the big first premise. But then the next question is, rightfully so, how do we do this practically? Okay? So what I'm going to do is give you a big overarching principle and then some more specific practicalities. Okay? The big overarching principle, uh, think of that as kind of footing from which to use the rest of the tactics. Strong base. So that first thing, that big principle, is, is that the way we think about who we are affects much of the way this whole thing goes. Okay, So I'm going to read... A portion of scripture from Colossians. This is chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on things that are on earth. 
For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them, but now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Now, there are two opposite errors that keep people from finding the proper footing from which to fight this battle against sin and our flesh. One of those is hyper-grace, and the other is no-grace. I'm going to explain what I mean. Hyper-grace is where false teachers will take verses like verse 1 up here. What did that say? Therefore, you've been raised up with Christ. Okay, so they'll take a verse like that. And they'll take it out of context. And uh, when they do that, it causes a lot of problems, okay? The, so you've got that verse I just read. You were raised up with Christ. There's others that speak of our justified position and the relational restoration we have with God through Christ. They'll take all of that out of context, and they'll say things like, well, because of that, sin no longer matters. Jesus has forgiven all of our sin, past, present, and future. And there's elements to what they're saying that is true, but then that leads them to this conclusion that there's now no need for repentance. That's legalism. Don't worry about that. Here's the reality. Yes, we have been set free from slavery to sin. We have been set free from the kingdom of darkness and welcomed into the kingdom of light because of King Jesus, right? Yes and amen. We have been raised to new life in Christ, but the fullness of our redemption is not yet Realize we are still aliens and sojourners in a land that is not our home. And we still have enemies to fight, both external and internal. That's why verse 10 in this very same set of verses, right? So if you take verse 1 out of context, you've been raised up with Christ. Well, that means I'm, I'm everything I'm ever going to be in Christ. Hallelujah. Full eschatological realization. That doesn't mean anything to most of you, but for whoever it does, there you go. That's the problem, okay? It's over-realized. We're not, we're not there yet. We will be, but we're not yet, okay? We're still aliens and sojourners. We still have enemies to fight. And that's why verse 10, just nine verses down from verse 1, says we put on a new self that is being renewed. Is being renewed. So yes, we have been raised up with Christ, but we put on a new self who is being renewed. Still a process happening, Right? Yes, raised from death to life. Yes, transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. This all falls under the common shorthand of something. It's a theological concept called already not yet. I don't have time to totally unpack that or get into a bunch of it, but it's a helpful idea to understand. So <clears throat> we have been rescued and we are being rescued. We have been raised to life in Christ, but there is still a fight to fight. Okay? The New Testament, with all of its warnings and commands concerning how we behave, what we do, it makes no sense if hypergrace is true, right? If everything's, everything's fully realized, there is no more process, I'm all I'm going to be in Christ, I'm, I'm holy and perfect because he's holy and perfect, and I'm raised up with him, if that's really true, then what the heck is the New Testament about? Like the whole thing, 
that tells us how to live in light of the gospel. It doesn't make any sense. Now, on the other end of the spectrum is having no grace. Legalism is not a great, <laughs> accurate enough term here, so I'm just going to call it no grace, is when false teachers will ignore verses like verse 1 and only focus on commands that tell us what we ought to do and forget to talk about who we already are in Christ. No grace condemns and tries to weigh you down with guilt to get you to stop sinning, but that never works. It's the kindness and goodness of God that draws men to repentance. This whole principle I'm giving you, okay, is to think of yourself as God thinks of you. Not through a hyper-grace lens, not through a no-grace lens, but to think of how God thinks of you. A holy soldier made worthy by the blood of Jesus. Not a worthless vagabond who's not able or worthy to fight. It's kind of like this, okay? I want you to imagine yourself in two different outfits, but the same scenario. I know I'm asking for a lot of imagination tonight. Just this, I think this is the last one, okay? We can do it, all right? All right, it's two, two separate outfits, but I'm putting you in the same scenario, okay? Outfit one is your grimiest yard work clothes, okay? You are not putting this on the gram, right? I'm talking about that outfit that you only keep around because you know you're going to get dirty, Okay, you got that one in your mind? You know what it is? Probably scary for some of you, but hallelujah. Okay, so outfit one. Outfit two is the flyest get up in your closet, okay? This is, the, this is that outfit you put on. You feel the most Gucci, okay? You feel, you know, you're walking with swagger and all of that, feeling, feeling lit. Did I get them all in there? Okay, so... You got, you got your two outfits, all right? Your yard work outfit that you would never want to happen getting on the internet, and then you got the other one that you really hope someone takes a picture of you and puts you on the internet, okay? All right, so think of yourself in that outfit. Two, two different outfits, same scenario, okay? So you're standing on a curb, and a car hits the puddle next to you, and it, it shoots little dots of mud all over you, okay? Right? Classic, you know, happens in movies all the time when someone's having a bad time. The icing on the cake is the tire hits the puddle and, right? So you get mud sprayed all over you, all right? So here's my question. In which outfit would you be the most ticked off? The fly outfit, yep, obviously. Okay, so what am I doing here, all right? The little mud dots are sin and lust and deeds of the flesh, okay? We need to see ourselves as draped in the righteous robes of Christ, not wearing our old filthy rags. And that is why our sin should be an enraging offense to us. So what's very important, the firm footing to stand on for this battle is for you to see who you are in Christ. Not in an overrealized way that, that neutralizes all of the warnings and all of the rest of the commands to be ready to fight. But you need to... You don't, want, you don't want to be trying to put sin to death to become what you already are in Christ. And it's a much better motivation to be personally offended when what Christ has already done for you gets soiled than to see yourself as in filthy rags trying to get those robes of righteousness yourself because that, that motivation for that runs out pretty quick because it becomes evident pretty quickly that that's not going to happen. Okay? That's the firm place to stand on. 
That big overarching principle in how to see ourselves biblically is going to be super helpful footing from which to apply some of the practical battle strategies that I'm about to give you, okay? I'm going to uh, lay these out chronologically. By that, I mean before sin is committed and after. So if what we're talking about is putting sin to death, we're talking about getting brutal and violent when it comes to making war against our own sin, uh, we're going we're gonna to think about the, how the battle breaks down, right? Because there's, there's a fight before our feet are in, entangled in sin, and then, and then part of the battle is sometimes after that happens. We, we, the fight still goes on. We got to get up and get swinging again, okay? So we're going to talk about that in, in kind of a chronological context. All right, so a lot of how we wage war with sin starts before we're even tempted, okay? There is a pretty stark difference between the way we tend to roll into the seemingly mundane, mundane details of our day. I set myself up for failure with that phrase, didn't I? That was a tongue twister. The seeming mundane details of our day and the there's a difference between that and the way a soldier heads into an active battlefield. We need to understand that we are soldiers of King Jesus, living in a world that is hostile to his rule. And so for us, all of life is an active battlefield. All of life. This means we need to start each day doing what Colossians 3 said. Setting our minds on things above. We need to really meditate on the spiritual armor listed in Ephesians 6 and mentally and prayerfully put it on. I'm going to read that to you now. This is from Ephesians 6. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Now, we don't have time to break this all down right now, each piece of armor, why it matters and why it's important, but we have done that in the past, okay, so you can go find that, but there's also lots of good teaching. These are pretty famous verses, so there's lots of good teaching on, on why each of these pieces are provided to us by God, so the whole point here is get serious about knowing and wearing this armor that God has provided. Get serious about knowing and wearing it. I'm not speaking an allegory. Let me be perfectly clear. I mean, when you wake up each morning, you need to understand, if you serve Jesus, you are moving out into hostile territory every single day, everywhere you are. I mean that literally each day you need to wake up and you need to think about why God has provided a helmet of salvation and shoes with the preparation of the gospel of peace and a belt of truth and a breastplate of righteousness and a shield of faith. Why do I need these elements to be 
in my meditation and be part of these, these godly things that I'm meditating on that Colossians tells me is going to help me stay out of fleshly things. This is how we put the armor on. We think through it. We pray through it. We thank God for each piece of it. Another element to the fight before sinful temptation is even apparent is found in Romans 13. I'll read you this. Uh, Starting in verse 12, the night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Man, that's a good verse. And you want to talk about staying out of the quicksand, the pain of stumbling into sin? If we paid some more attention to this right here, here, here's the normal paradigm. Here's how it normally goes down for us. We do or don't even think as we start our day to pray and ask God for his empowering grace to stay out of sin, you know, just whichever that way goes. But then we just, you know, we're kind of fumbling, bumbling along or whatever. Most of us have a mentality of, okay, if I'm presented with temptation, then I'm going to, I'm going to pray that God gives me the strength to resist temptation, right? And that's, that's, that's a perfectly good thing. There's going to be times when we're not able to see far enough ahead to put this verse into practice, but there's a whole lot of times where we could. There's a whole lot of times where instead of getting right up to the edge of temptation and then having to try to white knuckle it and plead with God and all the angels and anybody that could help that I won't cross over into this sin, what we could do is take the really wise advice Jesus gave us because he made us and knows how we operate to make no provision for the flesh. Okay, so... <laughs> yeah, I'm going to do it. Okay, so if you... if you, um, Well, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to use an old one that some of you know and like and nobody gets mad at because I got other stuff that's going to make people mad, so I need to balance it out. Okay, so if, all right, let's say you're diabetic, all right, and the doctor says, hey, man, you got to cut your sugar. Here's what we do oftentimes as Christians. Like, okay, yes, doc, I'll cut the sugar. That's what I'm going to do. So that means I can't have chocolate cake anymore. Man, I really like chocolate cake, but that means I can't have it anymore, so I'm not going to get it. But what I will do is when I go to Kroger to get my bok choy, broccoli, and all the rest of my organic veggies, I'll just walk by the bakery because I know it'll be out, and I'll, I'll just smell it. I won't buy it. I'll just smell it. Well, then you walk by the bakery and you smell it, and then what happens? Crazy things that you never intended start happening in your brain because provision has been made for your flesh. You see the trap over there, you're like, well, I can probably get close to it, but I'm sure I won't step in it. So you go over, and now now you're looking at it. Not only you smelled it, but now you see it. You're like, well, hmm. I mean, here's the thing. I I really like how it looks. I'm going to buy it and put it on my counter just for the looks. I won't eat it. I'm just going to look at it. So you do it. You buy it, you take it home, you put it on the counter. You look at it every time you walk by. Somebody in here with some spiritual discernment, tell me what's going to happen when you wake up at midnight hungry. Somebody tell me. What you going to do? You about to have cake, ain't you? Quit making provision for your flesh, man. We act like fools. And we're laughing because I have a dumb analogy to break it down for you, but it's honestly tragic. 
when God in his great wisdom and love has given us these safeguards and he's shown us what to do. You need to understand that part of what Ephesians 6 was talking about is so that we can know the devil's schemes. You know many of the pressure points for you. You know the things where he can play you. You know the things where you can, Satan can throw a fiery dart of temptation and then your, your flesh and your mind will take it the rest of the way. All you need is a little nudge and you'll, you'll jump on the well-worn path all the way down to destruction. You know. So quit playing yourself and quit trying to think you're playing God because you're not playing anybody in, except into the devil's hands. <clears throat> now, I want to take a moment to address something here. Uh, our enemy works in the realm of deception, okay? And so many times the temptation he uses against us, they're much less visible than some of the, you know, I read you these verses that's talking about drunkenness, right? So it's talking about other types of addictions, sexual promiscuity, and these are obvious deeds of darkness, right? I mean, most people understand these are displeasing to God. They, they can all, most people can even connect pretty easily the dot between God says not to do that, and well, I can kind of tell why because it's super destructive, right? This is not that hard. But, you know, we can see those plainly. But, but what about the sneaky things, right? Because it lists some other ones like strife and jealousy. What about selfishness? Okay? That's not as easy to see as a drunk stumbling around or an addict in the gutter or somebody that's totally ensnared in sexual promiscuity. This stuff can, this stuff can even be shrouded under pious kind of self-righteous language. Okay? Now, I'm going to call one out here by way of example, and it's going to offend some people. And I'm going to do that because I am so tired of the enemy wreaking havoc among our ranks with this specific form of selfishness uh, that I'm, I'm willing to face the backlash. Some of you have already maybe been uncomfortable by the tone of this sermon. I, just, I, need, you to, I need you to understand something. When it comes to fighting the war with sin, there's going to be some times where you need a drill sergeant, not a cheerleader. I, th this is not my favorite thing to do either. I don't inherently enjoy conflict or people being offended by what I'm saying, but I'm going to preach the scriptures raw when they're raw. And we just read a bunch of verses about beating your enemies out like fine dust, destroying them. Okay? Here we go. Selfishness has many faces, and it can be masked by seemingly innocent or even godly motivations. One epidemic-level example of this is how many people are discontented and downcast because of an overwhelming sense of loneliness or lack of connection. A common narrative is that someone truly desires real relationships and is trying to connect to people, but it doesn't seem like anyone else is willing to make an effort. It seems like no one can relate to them, and this is for various reasons. Most of the time, they have tried to connect to people, at least they think they have, but it just doesn't seem to click. And this leads to isolation and insecurity that only further reinforces the narrative. Then it gets to the point where they are hesitant to reach out or be vulnerable enough to try connecting, and then end up in an embittered, sit-back-and-wait-for-someone-to-come-to-me posture. 
Well, here's what I'm going to do. I want to try to help those of you that are stuck in this and those of you who want to help those stuck in this, okay? The latest polling shows that half of Americans, 50%, feel lonely and isolated and without real connection. This was not a BuzzFeed article, okay? This is Harvard. These are health insurance companies because of the connection between mental health and physical health. This is legit, scientifically well-done polls. Half of America answer, I'm lonely and isolated. If the majority of those people are waiting for someone to come along and make the investment and do the hard work of building a genuine relationship, then no wonder the numbers keep growing every year of people that feel like this. I don't mean to be pejorative, but this is not rocket science, friends. Okay, Dan, come here for a second and help me real quick. Dan, do you enjoy handshakes? They're good enough, okay? Well, for the sake of this, I want you to say you enjoy handshakes. I enjoy handshakes. Okay, thank you. Okay. I also enjoy handshakes. Okay? So here in a second, I'd like to shake your hand, but before we do that, what I, what I want to do is, so you, you would like to shake my hand right now, right? And I would really like to shake your hand. But here's what I want to do. I want to just demonstrate for these people what will happen if we both decide we're going to wait for the other person to, to shake the hand. Okay, so let's just do that for a minute. Uh, for those of you who are listening to this over the internet, nobody's hand is getting shaken. Love you, man. Thanks. Love you. See what happened there? Somebody had to go first. I made it easy on him, and I went ahead and did it. Thank, you can sit down, bro. You did a great job. Thank you. And, and I, <laughs> listen, I know, I know that, um, I know that a bunch of people would, would really like to tell me it's a lot more complicated than that. And I get that there's nuance, and I get that there's other factors and whatever, but at the end of the day, it, it actually really is, for the most part, that simple. Partially because if you go outside right now, one out of every two people feels lonely and isolated. So it shouldn't be that hard for people to find someone to help fill that gap. It's not like everybody's saying, oh, I'm maxed out. Maxed out relationally. If you would make war against your self-focus and self-pity and ask God to empower you to meet the need for real connection in other people, the gridlock could be broken and your sense of isolation would be fixed. And so would a bunch of other people's. The reality is that real relationships take a bunch of effort. And if you're struggling in this way, if you take an honest look at yourself, you may find that you have an unrealistic idea of what it's going to take to cultivate it. But here's the key. If even half of the hundred, the last time I remember seeing a U.S. population uh, number, I think it was 320 million. So if you math nerds know that I'm wrong, whatever, it's not the point. But let's just say I'm right. It's 320 million people roughly. If half of those people, 160 million people are self-identifying as lonely and isolated inside and outside the church, if we would quit focusing on how sad we feel about being lonely and we'd make it our mission to love and serve others who are feeling that way, this crippling attack from the enemy would have a lot less success. 
Now, I realize that this may have seemed like a tangent, but it actually ties into the last principle and piece that I'm going to give you for battling sin before temptation. This piece actually happens to be the last piece before, like during the temptation phase, before you've actually sinned. So it's the last piece before that, and it's the first thing I'm going to give you for how to battle sin afterwards. This one actually bridges across and applies to both. Okay, so that practical piece is accountability, and I mean specifically to one another. Okay, is that a biblical principle? I'll let you judge. Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Proverbs 27.17, iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Galatians 6.2, bear you one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. We could keep going. It's a clearly established biblical principle that not only are we accountable to God, but he's designed this whole thing to work so that we're accountable to one another. God has given us one another in the body of Christ as a gift. We know each one of us struggles with the flesh. We are all a part of the same mission And these things bind us together, and they can cultivate a mutual trust that allows us to be honest about the places we are prone to fall, both before and after we've stumbled. Now, a common myth that keeps us from utilizing this powerful defensive and offensive tactic of accountability against sin and keeps us from employing it against Sin is that is we believe this lie, that someone has to be just like us or struggle just like us in order to help us. Let me, can I help you with something? Commiserating does not lead to victory. You can't find me that verse. Victory comes through the word of God and the power of the spirit. And any believer can point you to God's word and pray with you. I'm not saying that someone having a similar story is never helpful. I understand that it can be. But making it a requirement is unwise, and it's overly narrow. And it may keep you from being able to participate in the beautiful gift of accountability. Now, the next way we wage war against sin, after we've been duped by it, is repentance. Martin Luther, when he nailed his 95 Theses to the wall, one of the very first things it said is, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. All the hyper-grace goofballs standing on Martin Luther's shoulders and the Reformation's shoulders should go back and read that. That was a little sassy side comment from me, yes. That stuff frustrates me, but anyways. 1 John 1, nine. if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Repentance is identifying the places where we have lost a battle with sin, but knowing that the war is already won in Christ. It is confession, but not as if simply saying what we've done is the end, but at the same time we're requesting and we're receiving God's empowering grace to get back in the fray and fight again. Now, the last thing I'm going to give you in how we fight sin 
even after we've stumbled into it, is to remember the gospel. The gospel is what allows us to do all of the rest of what we've talked about. When we set our minds on the truth that we are more wicked than we would ever want to admit, but more loved than we could ever imagine, it helps us to see ourselves as soldiers of light instead of vagabonds. It helps us be motivated by love for God and love for people because we've actually seen what true love is in the gospel. And because of that, we can get up every day and we can put on that armor because there is always something worth fighting for. We can be accountable to each other because we know that each of us are only beggars who found the bread of life and that we have all drank from the same living waters. And we can repent without fear, knowing that if God would sacrifice his son for our good, that he will go all the way to the cross, that he did go all the way to the cross to have us. If he did all of that, he's not going to give up on us now. Keeping all of that in mind, friends, may we fight sin with brutal savagery for our good and God's glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, we thank you for the last 13 verses of Psalm 18. I thank you that you have not sanitized your scriptures. I thank you, God, that you let the raw brutality and the reality of what was going on there come through. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you put David in his time to fight real battles among nations, but you've placed us in our time to make war against the forces of darkness and the deeds of our own flesh, our own sinful inclinations. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you haven't asked us to make war without giving us the weapons and the armor to fight with. Thank you that above all else, not only have you given us the implements of war, but you have promised to be with us. That even as we may falter in the frailty of our own strength, that you will fight for us. Thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus for your faithfulness in these matters. Thank you for your patience, God. Lord, please forgive us for the times that we have defended our sin, that we have made friends with our sin, that we've shaded the truth, lied to ourselves, been comfortable with disobedience to you. God, forgive us for all that foolishness, and please work in us a hate a bitter hatred for every single sinful inclination that would cause us to disobey you. May our love for you and our love for people cause us to hate all that would keep us from the beautiful mission that you've called us to. Thank you for who we are in you. Thank you, God, that we're not trying to earn righteousness, that this whole battle is not about getting you to love us, but that you have loved us and you've draped your robes of righteousness over our shoulders. God, may we be horrified when the stain of sin splashes up on that. Thank you that in your grace we can come in repentance and you'll cleanse us and wash us yet again. Thank you that we are whole in you. Thank you that we've been raised up with you, but thank you also that you allow us to be soldiers of light, ambassadors of this beautiful gospel. God, I pray that you would help every single person that hears this to open their hearts to accountability that might not be shaped or size just the way they think they need. God, may we be open to the reality that when we're accountable to one another, it's your spirit working through us that helps one another anyways. 
I thank you for those who have found someone that can relate to them in very specific ways. But God, help us. Help us to be open to the reality that you can use any one of us to love and help any other one of us. God, please change our, our paradigm and our dynamic. When we think of things that we're struggling with and things that are holding us down, God, please help us to think about going out and fighting for others in those things. To go out and, when it comes to this loneliness thing, God, I'm asking, please, half of America says they're isolated and lonely, Lord. I don't know what's happening. I don't know what the end game is of the enemy, but I know that is not your will for these people, and I ask that you would set them free and you would use us to do it. God, may we not be the ones sitting off to the side waiting for someone to come and meet our needs. God, may we go out and be need meters in love, anointed for that purpose and for your glory. Thank you that you've created us for community and you've created us for connection. Lord, please help us walk in that to the glory of your name and for the joy of your people. We love you and we worship you. We thank you that none of this is possible without your gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.